Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 31, we're discussing Excalibur number 30, Twas a Dark and Stormy Night, teased on the cover with an image of Megan as a vampire and the strap line, Megan's Molar Madness. I am not a dentist, but I think vampire fangs are usually canines. Good try on the alliteration, though. Excalibur number 30 was originally published in October 1990, and the creative team is Dana Moore's head on writing, David Ross on pencils, Al Milgram on inks, Brad Venkata on colors, Brad Joyce on letters, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. It's happening right now in London. New York could be next. Or Paris, or Rome, or Tokyo. It's happening right now to this girl. Perhaps... It's your turn next. We are not dealing with ordinary criminals. The real force is more sinister, more obscene than any monstrosity you can think of. Lord of corruption, master of the undead. Count Dracula. This week's episode, we'll be discussing teeth and vampires with a guest who knows a lot about at least one of those topics. She is not a dentist as far as I know, but vampires I know she's got covered. I will introduce our guest in a moment, but first, your regular sexy undead bloodsuckers. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write and talk about gender and sexuality and comics and pop culture. So I've inevitably talked a little bit about vampires in my day. Probably the highlight of that strain of my scholarly life was giving a guest lecture on Twilight in which I had the students compare and contrast sexual, gender, and racial aspects of fan videos featuring Robert Pattinson and Taylor Lautner. I maintain that this was an awesome class activity, and I give it to any teachers out there who may be listening to the pod to try out in their own classes. It was actually pretty awesome. When I'm not defending the scholarly value of Twilight, I'm publishing academic stuff and popular stuff for websites like ComicsXF, The Middle Spaces, and Shelf Dust. I also put in a lot of volunteer hours as Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. Mav, if you would like to tell the listeners a little bit about your tired self last fire will rise behind those eyes black house will rock blind boys don't lie immortal fear the voice so clear <laughs> i went back and forth whether i wanted to do cry little sister or duckula and, <laughs> and i couldn't decide and I'm, I'm still not sure i chose right but hi my name is christopher maverick you can call me Matt. <laughs> Um, just every once in a while, I just hope that people are just like listening and going, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a child of the seventies and eighties. Okay. <laughs> this is, um, it's a great movie. It's, it's brilliant. And it's better than this book, but this is something. Oh, I mean, Hey, I, I, there, there, there is some, there's something here in this, in this episode. I, I, I'm not going to say it's bad. We've read far worse episodes of, of Excalibur. <laughs> I'm not going to say it's good. There's something here, and I'm I'm here to talk about it. I guess um, when I'm not doing that, I'm an adjunct professor at like half the schools in Pennsylvania at this oh. point, and I, which is why I'm so tired right now and loopy. We're recording later than we normally do, and um, I do comics and pop culture and movies. Vampires, 
I, I was team Jacob up until that last couple of movies, which got weird and creepy. Uh, so I don't know. We'll talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about it, certainly. Andrew, if you would like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, as, you'll, as always. Uh, as always, I am Mavs Anticlimax, Dr. J. Andrew DeMann. I am a lecturer at St. Jerome's University, the project lead for the Claremont Run, a big data, big social media, sometimes big headache project devoted to unraveling the legend of Claremont. And we recently published a video essay about the toxic Captain Britain Megan relationship that might be our least popular video ever. And I don't even care because I love it so much that I'm calling it my second doctoral thesis and would very much like it if people now call me Dr. Dr. Andrew DeMann in honor of this. <laughs> wow. Well, I thought it was a fabulous video, Andrew. And I know you did get some very nice comments about the video. <laughs> From Anna specifically. If you say Dr. Andrew DeMann PhD, does that cover it on both sides? Like if you, you know, because usually only use one or the other. So you can, that feels you can like double both. dipping. Yeah. 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 No, there that's a go. good point. <laughs> well, uh, we already tweeted out that video, but I'll share it in the podcast notes as well, just to make sure people don't miss it, because this is an interesting <laughs> Megan and Brian issue, and we will talk about that. Our coven is thrilled to welcome this week someone who I already teased knows a thing or two about vampires in Dr. Kate Coker. Welcome, Kate. Hi, thank you for having me. We'll tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and then get you to tell us a little bit about yourself as well. So Dr. Kate Coker is an associate professor and curator of rare books and manuscripts at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Her scholarly work is located at the intersections of genre, gender, and popular culture. She is co-editor of the Women in Book History Bibliography and a senior bibliographer for the Science Fiction Research Index. Most recently, she edited The Global Vampire, essays on the undead and popular culture around the world, which won the Lord Ruthven Award for Best Nonfiction earlier this year. Congratulations. She is currently editing another book, Sex and Supernatural, that will hopefully be out in 2023. So many awesome projects. So exciting. So Kate, we're certainly going to give you a chance to talk lots and lots about vampires, but I also want to talk a little bit about to what extent you might have any kind of comics background. I think when we were talking, you told me that you had read some Excalibur at some point. Am I correct in that? assumption yeah and i am a huge x-men fan from way back um okay i'm a child of the 80s and so i remember vividly when i was like around the age of 11 or so the first x-men cartoon came out and <laughs> mm-hmm. i loved it so much and so i ended up beco- becoming a kind of comics geek because of it when i was a little kid i read a lot of like the archie comics and then with like the new obsession i started buying the x-men comics and this was the early 90s when it was a pain in the butt because they were constantly doing like crossovers and things they always wanted oh, yeah. to buy like multiple issues at a time and that did not go over great with my allowance <laughs> <laughs> so i did what i could could but a few years later so my favorite character was uh, was kitty pride and we did, was, when, when i grew where i grew up in uh, rural georgia we didn't actually have a comic shop you had to get comics at like the local grocery stores and things like that and so nobody carried excalibur this was the early days of the internet too so i had quickly found some like online friends and several of them were like kate you need to read excalibur and so some of them actually sent me some stuff so i read part of the Warren Ellis run when it first came out and then eventually I got um, a few years ago some of the omnibus reprints that they've been publishing and like another thing that I just think is so amazing about comics culture now is how much easier it is to get a hold of stuff like when I was reading online in the 1990s you know if you couldn't get a hold of an issue or something you had to you know get summaries from websites and stuff now it's super easy to go download something or find a reprint it's so yeah. different i know yeah i mean i we've talked about this before on the podcast but yeah like i didn't get into comics until kind of the era of digital comics for some of those access issues but i remember so much though i mean i was really into certain tv shows during the 90s and that was so painful if there had been like a thing where you missed two seasons of a tv show and you didn't <laughs> happen to have a channel that had that on reruns you were just you couldn't get the show like you were mm-hmm. Relying on people typing out the scripts on like news groups to try to figure out what might have gone on. It was a wild time to be a fan. News groups, these kids today. <laughs> We're I'll tell you about zines. I'll tell you about zines. <laughs> but can I ask you just a couple more things about it, Kate? So what kind of drew you to X-Men or superheroes? What did you find appealing about that genre or context? I, I think what 
what I really liked was, you know, the same thing that many other people liked, which was I, I was, you know, a, a nerdy little child who was maybe too smart for their own good. And, you know, and that like that that's basically Kitty Pride, except she had a cool yeah. telepathic speaking alien dragon. Mm-hmm. And I did not. Um, still angry about that. Um, and you know, just one of the things I think is interesting about popular culture was a norm in the nineties was like the joy and glory of secular humanism, this kind of expectation that knowledge was important as was, you know, trying to reconcile people with one another. I'm thinking in particular of, um, Highlanders, a series, which was one of my other favorite things from the nineties. And, you know, they retold like historical episodes episodes in contrast with the modern day 1990s and made so many connections that I just don't think we really do now and in fact you know in many ways we do the opposite with the current wars about you know just trying to teach history here in the U.S. Uh, it's just something that's been kind of weird and alarming to watch and I saw there was a tweet or something I saw recently about um, the thing about being Gen X and a millennial is growing up and realizing that Magneto was was right. Um, yeah. yeah. You're kind of like, mm, you know? So you think it was sort of some of those political allegories and stuff that kind of drew you to X-Men? Yeah, exactly. And it's the same sort of thing you see uh, with vampire stories too. Like, they always are about anxiety and they're about anxieties within broader culture and society of what you're supposed to be versus what you are and how you feel about it. Like, that's all straight-up interview with the vampire, yes, right? Like, definitely. it's Louis' constant self-hatred and anxiety and so forth. And he is, like, super queer-coded, so, like all of the stuff where he's angsting about a vampire is so easy to read as angsting about being a gay in, you know, 70s and 80s. And, you know, I did an epic reread of the Vampire Chronicles a couple years ago, and it's like, nothing has changed. That kind of queer reading actually just, like, jumps up 20 notches. Um, Which is also why, like, you know, there's a new TV adaptation of that that's in development, and they keep making noises about it, and I have no idea what it's going to do. Yeah. Le- oh, okay. I want to get back to this conversation about vampires. So let's get this issue summary over with, and then we're going to come back and talk about vampires and fold this issue into that discussion because I'm already super excited to talk about this. All right. I know we have lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. You're amazing. And every single one of you is our favorite. But as usual, let's stake out our territory with that plot summary. Excalibur number 30, Twas a Dark and Stormy Night, begins fittingly on a dark and stormy night with Brigadier Alison Stewart arriving at Excalibur's light for her brother Alistair's birthday party. When she opens the door, a vampirish Megan busts through and escapes into the night. Captain Britain, Lockheed, and Widget hot on her heels. Inside the lighthouse, she finds Rachel injured while Kurt's been bitten and locked in a closet by Alistair, who assumes he's also been transformed into a vampire. Unable to rouse Rachel and unwilling to let Nightcrawler out of the closet to help, Alison and Alistair kind of sit around bored for a while because he's a really good person. Alistair decides to open his birthday presents. Luckily, the present he receives from Rachel inspires an idea. He's going to call Doctor Strange for help. Meanwhile, in Hyde Park, London, Brian, Lockheed, and Widget are hiding in the bushes, lying in wait for Megan. She soon dives out of the trees and attacks Brian. They struggle with Brian trying not to hit her, knowing she's somehow possessed. But when she aims her fangs at his throat, he's forced to toss her aside. For a moment, she seems to return to her senses. But when a group of senior citizens approach them, she shouts about being attacked by Brian. The olds take it to Brian while Megan turns into a rabbit and escapes. Back at the lighthouse, Alistair, who is still a really good person, complains about Doctor Strange taking too long to arrive. On Q, the Sorcerer Supreme appears, accompanied by his assistant, a naked green minotaur dude named Rintra, who is awesome. Strange and Rintra finally help Kurt out of the closet. He's wounded, but not a vampire. Alistair apparently forgot Kurt's always had fangs. Back in the park, Dawn's approaching, and Brian finds Megan in a clearing in the woods. He grabs her, and Widget opens a portal to transport them back to the cave under the Excalibur lighthouse. The other members of the team rush downstairs to help. Before the fight can get overly wild, Doctor Strange freezes everyone, then uses the eye of Agamotto to drain a bunch of dark hold energy from Megan, which he identifies as responsible for her transformation. This successfully returns Megan to normal. As Doctor Strange and the still awesome Rinta leave, Strange prescribes a holiday for Kurt to recover, rest for Rachel, and observation for Megan just in case. Brian, meanwhile, must attend a party thrown by the senior citizens who beat him up. Um, okay. So, <laughs> I actually don't hate this issue. I'm gonna stand up for it being a fun issue in some ways, but I will let our honored guest 
guest take first crack at some first impressions. So, Kate, anything that particularly stood out to you about this issue that you're anxious to discuss? Anything you want to complain about or rave about right off the top? Okay, what the heck was Alistair locking Kurt into a closet? <laughs> what was that about? Yeah, and, and like, second of all, like, was Kurt, like, too injured to, like, bamf out? Like, or was he oh. just, like, hey? With- yeah, there is there is sort of an in-story reason for that. Like Kurt no. does have like his tell okay, but his teleportation powers are like damaged, but uh-huh. so like it's sort of reasonable that he couldn't bamf out. But yeah, he uh-huh. could presumably just like get out he of the He would closet. do it once. There's- no, no, he already teleported once in this story. They do say that. I like uh-huh. was trying to think about whether it made sense, but yeah, uh-huh. it's it's flimsy at best. Flimsy at best. He can talk still. He can talk. I know. Alistair, I know. I, know. I still have fangs. <laughs> I've always had fangs. You've known me for like two years. What are you doing? <laughs> How did you? You were my roommate. You know when we did this interdimensional journey for months. You've noticed my teeth before. We almost had a threesome with two anime chicks. We <laughs> or a foursome. Like he knows what. His teeth look like alistair is not that dumb that that's the part that bothers me about it i actually don't mind the the fun vampire story at all alistair seems like an idiot oh yeah great reasoning it's inexcusably dumb the it might it might as well say look i wanted to tell a vampire story and i didn't want to think too hard about it so this is what we're going with the logic behind it is nonsensical and i'd wish they just not tried i wish kurt had just been trapped somewhere or something or done anything else because that part is just stupid it bothers me (laughs) it bothers me so much see see, that's the thing that i always remember about this issue because i find it super funny so i'm gonna like i'm gonna allow it i'm gonna allow the ridiculousness because it makes Uh, me laugh uh, (laughs) at alistair's expense definitely (laughs) but let's get back to your first impressions kate in addition to in addition to this closet escapade other first impressions from this issue so one of the things i thought was interesting you know in terms of vampire stories is uh well first of all like the way megan transforms into a vampire like she is this big green bat winged monster Mm -hmm. which no there's just not a frame of reference for that really you know, either in literature as done or like popular cinema that I can think of. The other things is their insistence that they have to get her back before dawn or she'll turn into dust. That is pure cinema. That is not in any folklore. That is actually not in any of novels or anything like that from, you know, the history of vampire literature. That all comes from early cinema uh, and, and uh, F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu. And the reason sunlight is so important in Nosferatu is because with those early cameras, you could see the kind of difference between like sunlight and darkness in a very different way in early film. And Murnau in particular had a fascination with the use of light in film. One of his other big kind of cinematic achievements is a film called Sunrise. And in that film, the idea of sun is, you know, transparently about moral goodness and reawakening and so on. And so this kind of like obsession, we've got to get her back so she isn't hit by the sun, has way more to do with film than it does with books or, you know, other comics that I'm aware of. Huh, that's interesting. I mean, is that something that's been kind of adopted into vampire mythology in the wake of films? Or do you find it just inconsistent with stories that you're familiar with? It's very much something from film. One of the things that is interesting is how film has a tendency to replace written words and how we treat things. So for another example, as you talk about the popular iconography of witches, you know, we're about to run into Halloween season, right? The t-shirts with the green witches are already starting to appear in stores. That comes not from any kind of folklore around witchcraft or anything. That comes specifically from the 1930s adaptation of The Wizard of Oz because, you know, having the actress in standard makeup wasn't scary enough but you slather her in green paint and all of a sudden it's scary and it's iconic and so that idea of like the green witch goes straight back to films that's not in any of the oz books at all she's just you know a normal person aside from that whole wicked witch thing right 
but this idea of like replacing the the kind of visceral images they're used in you know in cinema with the written word is just super interesting to me yeah for sure and i mean so many of sort of the classic monster stories have been indelibly shaped by particularly you know their american film adaptations you know i mean the frankenstein story dracula story sort of any of those universal monster movies have have such a like huge cultural imprint on the ways that we understand those stories in the american context and sort of the wake of those films and then you have those films of course redone by hammer studios and then sort of the cycle repeats again but yeah it's really interesting the way these things kind of translate in different eras which is something i really want to talk about in terms of where this comic book fits specifically within some of those traditions which we're already starting to talk about but i want to hear your first impression andrew because i was curious about whether you would find enjoyment in this issue or just completely hate it so i'm i just i want to gauge your reaction so i know what i'm kind of working with here what was your reaction to this issue andrew i'm in between i think there's a lot of good stuff here i think structurally it's actually really sound like the the vampire thing could be anything uh it could be any like weird wacky caper they go on because for me this is framed as an alistair story and i actually really like the way it's framed uh, this mm-hmm. idea of Alessand uh, as your viewpoint character at the start. Um, this creates like like a sort of sounding, to use terrible riverboat terms, uh, of where Excalibur <laughs> is as a group at this point in time. And in particular, Alistair's sense of belonging within this weird group. So having this set from the perspective of Alistair's sister, who knows him better than anyone, his sister who is a skeptic, who is a rule follower, uh, and having her see her brother just completely immersed in this weird Excalibur world. Um, I think that really establishes who the group is, but as I said, more importantly, who Alistair is within the group now and his inclusion within that group. You know, he's still her, her brother, but he's part of Excalibur now. And I love the ending of it too. I, I love the just quietly in the background. She just grabs her coat and pieces out uh, because this is not her world anymore. So there, there's some real character momentum happening here. I don't think the vampire story is doing much towards anything that's going to be like long lasting or pivotal. And as I said, it could have been any kind of caper surrounding it, but I still think there's some um, narrative momentum being achieved. Yeah, I like some of the group dynamic stuff in this issue. And I like some of the deadpan humor. I thought the kind of conclusion, which we'll get to, but you know, some of the like, you know, when they're in the basement, it's like, and the dragons, oh, they're both ours. (laughs) You know, Kurt's just kind of standing there (laughs) casually with his arms folded. I think there's some decent like humor in this issue. But Mav, I got the impression that you're coming in hot. It's mostly like the thing that I, the thing that bothers me, I just ranted about. Like it is really the the logic of trapping kurt who you know very well <laughs> you know in the closet knowing full well that he can teleport no like it makes everybody look stupid and that and that bothers me that's the only thing the story as far as filling filling issues of excalibur go it's fine you know we just read a power pack one we read an nth man one we've read like we've been doing a lot of filling issues at this era and it's not my favorite of them um that that one would probably be brian and megan in the pub i think it's the best written of them but i think it is serviceable as a comic that could have you know andrew and i have talked about this before it could have just as easily been in marvel comics presents as it is here and it's fine i I don't hate it there's some weirdness where morsehead doesn't know the characters well enough to really establish their voices and they feel a little bit different but they don't feel different in a bad way it's just you know this isn't claremont's version this isn't what will be ellis's version you know this is you only get one issue to establish yourself and the bickering feels slightly out of character but i don't hate the story i think it's interesting in fact it uh, may be a little rushed because you've got a lot of moving pieces trying to it's a big team and then you also got to um, establish um, Strange and Wong and Rintra there's a lot going on there is indeed but well let's start by getting further into the vampire stuff and then maybe we can come back to some of this team dynamic stuff because I definitely want to talk about Dr. Strange coming into this world but let's start with vampires because I want to get you Kate to talk a little bit more about sort of the cultural context of vampirism and ways that we can kind of use that to understand this issue a little bit and we've already of course opened up this conversation but we'll go a little bit further with it. So one of the things that I thought was so interesting about your book, The Global Vampire, is the way that you're looking at vampires and all of these different sort of social and cultural contexts. You've got essays in there about Korean culture, like Aboriginal Australian culture, various European and North American cultures, and lots, lots more. But are there central traits that unite conceptions of the vampire sort of across cultures? Or is it specifically linked to a certain culture in your understanding of it? It's definitely linked to certain cultures. So almost everyone has some aspect of what we might call a vampire, but how that vampire actually 
works is going to be very different. So for instance, in Italy, you have the figure of the Lamia. The Lamia is basically a kind of succubus. She is super sexy. And the way she drains the life force is sexually. Very different body fluids than blood. Um, if you get my meaning there. And so you contrast this with, uh, for instance, like Korean Shanxi's. You know, through China and Japan, they all have all kind of have the same kind of similar figure of a hopping vampire. In some cases, it is a single hopping foot. In some cases, it is the entire hopping body. But what it devours is chi or life force. No no blood sucking is necessary within that aspect. Um, If you look at different vampire figures from different African cultures, you have things like the Sukiyant. um, You have uh, various other creatures where sometimes they, they actually appear as creatures. There's one from, I think, Nigeria where it's basically kind of a giant pig creature if i'm recalling correctly and th- those are they're much more animal based rather than being humanoid or you know being directly undead and you know varies depending on context if you are looking you know at the more anglo-american tradition of the vampire in particular what excalibur is drawing on specifically is varney the vampire which is a popular novel from the 1840s and it was a penny dreadful which means it was published in installments where the author was paid by the line and it shows it's just huge, <laughs> enormous yeah I, I have my copy out with me it, it's it's the size almost the weight of a brick um and it, it's just this love you know it's a love story it's a soap opera there's murder mysteries because for a while it's very clear the author can't decide whether or not the character they're writing about is an actual vampire or a serial killer pretending to be a vampire, right? And, you know, when they talk about Varney the vampire in the Marvel series, you know, he's supposed to be this kind of immortal, monstrous figure, like from Atlantis or something like that. And, you know, Doctor Strange has kind of like the explication of, you know, the vampires in their context, which again are the very monstrous. One of the things about the the Varney novel, however, is it's kind of one of the first attempts to have sympathetic vampires. You're supposed to feel kind of bad eventually. This is, you know, someone who's trapped in an immortal body and they are not happy about that. The other thing I think is really interesting just generally is culturally like the, the treatment of women vampires versus male vampires i was gonna Um, ask you about that yeah yeah you know you almost never have sympathetic women vampires ever and one of the things i thought that they did interesting with this excalibur story is megan is very much a victim but by making her this kind of animalist monster she's really just kind of like losing any kind of sense of agency in a lot of the other popular vampire stories like you know interview with a vampire or you know even twilight there's a focus on the woman's agency and in particular anxiety around her powers like one of the big things about twilight in that last book is bella's finally a vampire everyone's terrified she's going to go on a killing spree and the, the kind of you know dramatic climax in one sense is the fact that she is another vampire who has self-discipline and does not kill people and every, everyone is amazed oh my god you passed people and you didn't kill them <laughs> That's amazing. Um, You know, in in contrast with, you know, Vampire Willow or Darla from Buffy and Angel, Akasha, the Vampire Queen from uh, the the Vampire Chronicles, in particular, the Queen of the Damned film. There's all the iconography is focused on women vampires are just scary and out of control. Which goes back to those feelings of anxiety that you were kind of talking about at the beginning. You know, the idea of, like, women with unrestrained power and so forth. In the comics, you see that almost with, like, with the Dark Phoenix storyline, right? Mm -hmm. This idea of Jean as being, you know, the sexualized creature who has superpowers and she, like, she eats an entire star and it is, like, explicitly described as being an orgasmic experience. Oh, yeah. Jean is essentially a vampire in that scene. There's probably a lot of sort of obvious things we could say about the reasons that women are linked to these forms of vampirism. But do we want to put kind of a finer point on it? You know, like, which tropes of womanhood are sort of bound up in these expectations of women representing a particularly threatening form of consumptiveness and hysteria? And the idea that they can't reproduce. That's the, supposed mm. to be the most horrifying thing 
thing of all and how that like you know directly ties into um interview with a vampire as well as you know twilight and various other stories the 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 women vampires that go on killing sprees that's straight up lucy and dracula you know this idea of you know the the horror of non-reproductive womenhood right so i mean how does that interplay with kind of some of the gender deviance that we can read into male vampires. I mean, we brought up queer coding sort of in our sort of initial conversation a little bit there, but what's threatening about a male vampire generally, if we're speaking about sort of the European and the North American context, because obviously this is very different in a lot of different contexts, but what's threatening about that kind of vampire and how does it sort of relate or compare to the threat that a female vampire usually represents? Well, there's a couple of different kinds, right? If we go back to 1819, that's when two big vampires vampire stories come out. One is The Vampire by John Polidori. And a few weeks later, like literally just a few weeks later, out comes a story called The Black Vampire. And that's in an American weekly. And it's a short, short story. Author attached to it is Uriah Derek Darcy. Um, within Polidori's story, he's identifying his character of Lord Riven explicitly with Lord Byron. This character is, you know, an elite aristocratic guy who likes to seduce women, and then he, like, leaves them broken and depraved and so forth. Byron was so offended by this portrayal that he basically, like, hounds John Polidori, who was previously one of his friends and doctors, he basically hounds the guy to death. Polidori kills himself (laughs) at the age of 24. Oh, God. Um, he, he just can't handle, like, all of the abuse anymore. And that's what happens there. With The Black Vampire by Darcy, this is a story that has, w- like, come back to more popular recognition in very recent years because it takes place in America and it's meant to be kind of a, a critique of slavery. It's 1819. And what happens is, again, an elite guy, uh, Mr. Persona, you know, he, he just willfully kills a slave he owns, this 10-year-old kid, throws him into the water, and it's not explained, but this kid transforms into a vampire and, you know, it's kind of a revenge tale. You know, there's descriptions of like him walking like a crab and so forth. And then when he reappears, it's this very handsome, wealthy adult. You know, what happens is he basically hounds uh, the, the mortal man into death and then he kills their kid. He remarries the woman's wife. He eventually transforms her into a vampire. And there's like so much going on with like this thing anxiety of wealth and race and all of these things is just super weird and super interesting. A couple decades later you have Carmilla by Sheridan Le Fanu. Carmilla is a you know a wealthy aristocratic vampire. She's also lesbian. She likes to seduce the ladies and that's extra 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 scary. And then you, of course you finally get to Dracula in the 1890s where this is a story um, about anxieties of immigration and Dracula is again wealthy aristocratic eastern european who moves to london he's buying land and houses and all of the other people are like really concerned about this they're concerned about you know the way the women are super interested in him and he's also repeatedly described as being like super ugly there's like long descriptions of his hairy arms and his hairy hands which at the time you're supposed to read this is definitely having a sexual connotation as someone who's oversexed. All of these things just kind of like flow together. Like it's not just the idea of murdering people and drinking blood is real bad, but also like this idea of like out of control sexuality is just as bad. Yeah, and I mean, it can be mobilized to do so many different things in terms of like the exchange of fluids, transformation, you know, assimilation, you know, the sexualness bound up in the exchange of fluids and the ways that that is often visualized when we have these stories represented visually, right? It can be used to do so many different things, right? Related to sexuality and race and politics on so many levels, right? I mean, could I ask you, Andrew and Mav, to weigh in on sort of the relationship between some of these themes of vampirism as they're interacting with Megan? here and like with Megan's powers in particular and you know I'll give you the first crack at it Andrew you know as our avowed Megan (laughs) fan but I mean do you see that like anything interesting happening here in terms of like the relationship between Megan and vampirism I mean we've talked already a little bit about her being hysterical and out of control and that taking away some of her agency Mm -hmm. but isn't an interesting dynamic here in terms of her empathic metamorph powers 
Yeah, I think there's something compelling happening there. It's it's a little odd in that Megan's initial storyline and backstory was based around werewolfism. Yeah. Um, so so jumping monsters is, I don't know, I, <laughs> we call it inconsistent. But more than that, though, I, I think one of the things that I would draw out in terms of um just the relationship to Kurt, the fact that she bit Kurt, is something Kate could probably talk about better than I can. Um, but the association of the vampire with the guilt reduction hypothesis, which is the idea that the vampire for um, female characters such as Lucy and, and Mina Harker and Dracula, um, represents a like pressure release valve by which they're empowered to fulfill their sexual fantasies in a way that civilized society otherwise wouldn't allow them to do. It, it, it's a very contested theory, and it has a lot of sort of complicated ramifications, including potentially misogynistic ones. But to me, the, the issue with this issue is an absence I really, really, really want a scene where Megan bites Kurt uh, and to have that play out the way that those kinds of scenes play out in all of this vampire mythology and all of its sexual connotations. And again, the guilt reduction hypothesis and the idea of the monstrous woman or the woman seizing her own desire, uh, as Kate was talking about, that would be such a good scene. It would be hard to make that a bad scene. And I'm so sad that we don't get it, except as kind of this um, space that we have where we can insert in our brains what happens. Uh, because we have the prompt of it's already you know transpired um, but i think there, there oh, would be a lot man. there oh man yeah i mean when storm is a vampire in x-men she does save kurt for last i believe if i recall correctly <laughs> <laughs> which i always read as saving the best for last but um <laughs> but, uh, but yeah that like it's so interesting that yeah that you brought that up because i didn't really think about the significance of that that much surprisingly and i've just like really caught up thinking about that now so thank you andrew Mav, did you have thoughts about no i, kind I of, agree with andrew yeah. I, I mean it's if you're going to assume that there is a sexual nature to vampirism which i think you have to and this book doesn't really ask us to honestly uh, it is the yeah. most sanctified it's andrew, not that sexy Right. Well, at the beginning, Andrew even said, you know, this could be it could essentially be any problem. Right. The fact that she's a vampire, she's a vampire because they want an excuse to bring Dr. Strange in, you know, for reasons. It doesn't really yeah. matter. And so, like, there's that issue. But in a better story, I mean, you can make it like which we which we do here sometimes. I want to see what situation they're in where she bites Kurt and Brian isn't jealous or was he? Does Kurt enjoy it? Is is there more here? And the answer is, like we said this before you know your fill-in writer doesn't get to tell this story that's the problem this needs to be a reset status quo of the universe to where we left it because we don't know when this story is going to run so it should complicate their relationship in ways that because of the sexual tension between kurt and megan ongoing in the series we're sort of not allowed to do in this story because you know at the end they've just got to be bickering in the lighthouse and ah that's another wacky day in the lighthouse of excalibur <laughs> ho 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 mm -hmm. you know like, the, like that's how the story has to end it, it just has to end that way because this could be issue 30 it could be issue 25 it could be issue 35 we don't know you know like when, when we're writing it so i think that's kind of a problem but i'd i'd really like to see it because i do think that given these aren't just characters who exist in a vacuum for this fill-in issue these are characters that i have a history with and i mean as a reader i have a history of wanting to know the complicated love triangle between megan Kurt and Brian. I have a history of wanting to know the massive levels of sexual repression that Megan feels, right? Because mm -hmm. um, the similar thing, it's not vampirism, but it's effectively vampirism when she becomes the goblin prin princess. Right. Yeah. That's, that's what's happening here. So this is hearkening back to the level of freedom that, you know, go back to those Inferno issues that we did episodes about where we talk extensively about the level of freedom that Megan sort of feels in being the Goblin Princess instead of, you know, Brian's little Barbie doll, which is, I think, matters. Well, I mean, would it be different if the story was told from a different perspective? I mean, we talked about some of the positive things about the use of um, Alison's perspective and so Sort of bringing mm -hmm. her into that world and being an Alistair story but Megan is like the object of the gaze throughout this right like and I mean I don't necessarily mean that in a sexual sense but in the sense that like she's being observed and by everybody mm -hmm. right and we don't get the story from she's the complication like, at story. all yeah. yeah she is 
Megan is a vehicle of plot in this particular issue. There is no story if Megan, if we don't have to tra- chase Megan down. I mean, like there's character building with Alistair because who's at the lighthouse? Not, you know, he doesn't go anywhere. Kurt doesn't go anywhere for most of it. So, but in order to drive the story forward, Brian has to be chasing down Megan. So I, I agree there. I think what's, because I said at the very beginning, I actually like this issue more than it sounds like I do right now because I'm being critical of it. But what's interesting about this to me is that we're getting a lot of character building for Alisand, who we don't get a lot of. Alistair sticks around Excalibur a lot more often than, than his sister does. And I like seeing stuff from her because she didn't go into cross time caper and she's kind of bumming around with the x-men and at this point in continuity but not as much as alistair is bumming around with excalibur which is weird right or with the mer island x-men you know so so i like getting to see a development i like getting to see these two characters who are relatively underserved in the greater x-men mythology of alistair and allison stewart like i like seeing them and their interplay and i and i want more of it so i think that's very well done in this issue. I, th- I, have, I have criticisms of it as well in that there are no other characters. They threw a birthday party <laughs> for him where the only, the only guest they invited. Okay, the people that I hang out with every day threw a birthday party for me and the only guest they invited is my sister. So do I have no other friends? <laughs> you know, so that's weird. <laughs> That's weird. It's, it's an yeah. oversight. And it, like, it's like, oh, I don't want to draw. I mean, you don't have to name anybody, but just like literally just draw some other people, right? <laughs> like, like anybody else. Because cause if, Alist- if Alisand is busy and she can't show up or she has an emergency, there's no party. It's literally just these people that I always hang out with. You know, all of them live there except for Alistair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but, uh, yeah. But, uh, but I do like seeing their interplay. I like, mm-hmm. like when they have the, when, when they sit down and they sort of bicker and they sort of, you know, she gives them the idea, look, it is your birthday and I brought you a present, little brother you know that's that's cute it's it's nice yeah i'm yeah i still i keep thinking about the megan agency questions and the way that she's sort of absolved from having desire because of the way that this story is staged Mm -hmm. but i wanted to kind of kick it back to kate and sort of ask you you know you've read a little bit of excalibur before you're a little bit familiar with x-men but like did you feel like sexual connotations of the vampirism like within this story as it played out did you make anything of these interactions between megan and brian i mean we have vampire megan you know, trying to bite Brian's throat here. Did the sexual connotations of that sort of come off to you in sort of any interesting way or because of the way it was depicted, it was like not as interesting as it might have been? So for me, the thing that really stuck out was again that beginning with Alistair locking Kurt into a closet because Kurt might have been bitten, right? And like, you know, Kurt's locked in this closet and Alistair Mackin on Rachel, who's, you know, on the couch with the concussion. And it's like, dude, where's your focus here? Like, this really reads like some classic overcompensation by focusing on the pretty supine lady on the couch versus this living guy who, you know, you lock literally in a closet because he might have been bitten. Okay, and this is also at the same time, like, the other thing that comes to mind is, like, thinking about, um, this is a story that would have been, like, from the late 80s, early 90s, right? So the other thing that comes to mind is, like, anxieties around AIDS. And just that little bit of contact with the biting and the fluids and stuff might have transformed Kurt into a monster and made him dangerous. You know, that sort of thing. Versus, you know, because the, the, the interaction with Megan and Brian is they're already essentially, like, a fluid-bonded couple, right? They're, they're kind kind of isolated within that element but then there's the fear of Kurt who at the moment is not and again the immediate reaction of locking him into a literal closet well and there's also a line about like what would becoming a vampire do to Kurt given his particular nature of his mutant powers and like what kind of a vampire would he turn into and there's a lot of particular anxiety about that which is perhaps interesting within the context of that reading that you're doing Well, I mean, I still want to talk about sort of the Megan and Brian interaction in the park a little bit because she's not after Brian, right? Which I find interesting. You know, she's sort of after just escape, right? I mean, she like tries to eat the dog and that seems to be like a motivation of hers. But in the interaction with Brian, she tries to bite his throat, but just as a means of escaping from him trying to control her. And I found that like an interesting aspect of it. I mean, when she's the goblin princess, right? We see her attacking Brian. She creates sort of the film 
home studio thing and we have see the like reels of tape you know reeling brian in and then she puts him in this like snm costume is very mm-hmm. much sort of seizing control over the relationship and i don't He's think sterile, that yeah. that's the yeah like i don't think that's the same thing that we have going on here and i was just sort of intrigued by that difference i mean especially in contrast to the fact that we talked quite a bit already about the fact that she bites kurt but she doesn't bite brian she just runs away from brian i mean was that interesting to anybody at all or was it just me you know what is going on in terms of the power relationship between these two characters throughout this transformation and we have her transforming back into what seems like herself and then she specifically accuses brian of raping her and that's how she escapes in the form of a rabbit right yeah which you know that's creepy yeah i think we've, we've talked a little bit about this but the vampire is like a symbol of your subconscious desires let loose it's the idea that megan's subconscious desires to get the hell out of there and like attack him and oh there's some rough dialogue too like he screams she's mine when he runs at her to rescue her and that's that. not yeah and this makes no so kate talked about this the vampirism that megan experiences here certainly not classical vampirism which no kate basically explained to us not really movie vampirism also not exactly marvel comics universe vampirism because vampires have a tradition in the marvel comics 616 continuity that is very very in line with what the readers probably imagine as hollywood vampires right yeah. so so you know there is the sunlight turns in the dust dracula is a character in the marvel universe famously in a book called tomb of tomb of dracula if you've seen the blade movies they are very much based in you know they're coming out soon when this comic's published right so that that context exists in the marvel universe but they're not green and they're not feral vampires are much more calculated in marvel so she's behaving weirdly in a way that doesn't match what a vampire would be in a Doctor Strange comic at this time. So I don't know, and it's not clear from this book, is she supposed to be something else? Because vampirism is also not curable with just the, okay, I'm going to cast this spell and then you'll be better. Like Doc Strange has friends who are vampires and he can't cure them. But Megan's special. Megan's special. So maybe that matters. It's not clear at all. Well, yeah, she's not a true vampire, right? She's just been like sort of transformed into this form that is vampire-like by the dark hold energy, right? I mean, I guess the part that maybe... I know, (laughs) it doesn't mean anything, right? I mean, (laughs) it's related to like a storyline that was going on in Doctor Strange, which is strangely not indicated by an editor's note, but I had to look up. But um, anyway, I guess it's just what the question is, is that when we have a character that's sort of possessed, that can be obviously an invitation to explore some of their subconscious desires. I mean, it should ideally sort of teach us something about the character, right? I mean, do we want to just dismiss this portrayal of Megan as telling us anything about her character or do we not? And I think that that's a question we could probably each answer differently. And particularly if we don't want to go to some of the dark places that the impulses that Megan might have in this comic might take us, we could just like... She's just out of her mind and is not, you know, this doesn't reflect on her character because she's not herself. She is just possessed by another force and has zero agency. So we don't have to read anything about her character into any of the things that she does here or we can. And I don't know what this comic wants us to do. I'm sure it's just sort of leaving the question open because it's not a super sophisticated comic, but that's sort of the question that we're sort of butting up against, I would argue. Yeah, and I think Mav pointed it out that like in comparison to the Goblin Princess, this does fall a little flat in terms of exploring her character. Um, So even just that contrast, I think makes it harder to really line this up with what I think the author here is going for. Yeah, because it's hard for me to kind of get beyond the basics of you know Megan is usually the more disempowered one in the Brian Megan relationship and look she's attacking Captain Britain isn't that something and then it's not really going to a next level with that right I mean I did find it interesting how explicit Brian was about not wanting to hit her because we talked about some of the sort of emotional abuse aspects of the relationship and it's just so like I won't hit you I won't hit you I can't possibly hit you oh my god like I had to hit you and I feel so horrible about it so it really went to like pains to emphasize that for you know good and bad reasons because that's like sexist on another level too like you won't fight women but anyway but he will fight women you've seen him fight women but it's Megan so I mean you know (laughs) Like, I mean, it goes to pains to emphasize that. And I did find that interesting at the very least. 
in the sense that is the comic aware of how bad that would read given the context of these characters or something? I'm not sure. I dismiss a lot of, I mean, you said we had the choice and I would dismiss a lot of it based on it's a villain issue. Like she can't, it cannot be that much about her character. I mean, it's not the most inconsistent that she's been, but I mean, she's, she's not in her right mind. Right. So how much of it does really matter? Yeah, exactly. I don't see, I can't given the kind of vampire she is, I can't see this as this is Megan's sexual awakening and her proof that she really wants Kurt. I can't see it the way like it does. This does not feel like the Goblin Princess. It it just doesn't. She needs some level of agency for it to happen. And even inside of um, if we if you want to if you want to do creepy rape fantasies, there's more of that for Megan when she transforms into the desire of the of the guys on the ship, or when she's in on Coney Island and she's like just randomly turning into whatever race of whatever random dude thinks she's cute those work closer i think in the problematic megan wishing to be to fulfill other people's fantasies in a way that i don't think just mentioning that maybe maybe she bit kurt maybe she didn't off the panel it it just doesn't work for me yeah i mean not giving her any agency kind of in this transformation i think is sort of the problem that we keep coming back to because how much can we read this as an interesting exploration of her character if she has zero agency right right um let's come back to you kate and i do want to ask you about dr strange and kind of his intrusion in this world like we often think about magic and superheroes as having kind of an uncomfortable relationship in the sense that magic obviously exists in superhero universes and the sort of superpowers of superheroes are very magical and yet superheroes are generally supposed to be justified in technological ways like in his book about superheroes uh, Peter Coogan describes Doctor Strange as a magical character that exists within a superhero world who is not a superhero which I think is a definition we could sort of like argue with from different sides but did you see any associations with like Doctor Strange as like did he remind you of characters that show up in vampire stories did he have kind of a Van Helsing quality to him in this story to you at all not really I mean he's fair fair you know he seemed to be be like oh this was a magical thing let me find the magical you know answer with all of my books which as a librarian i am 100 percent down with (laughs) yeah check those books doc that's the way to do it one of the interesting things about the history of magic is you know in the anglo-european world is that for hundreds of years you know Literally, the way I explained it to a group of undergraduates yesterday was magic is kind of like pot is today, which is there's the assumption that even though the most laws say you're never supposed to touch the stuff, realistically, everyone's done a little bit at some point. So, <laughs> like, the, the, there's always the question of, like, how much did you do? How bad was it? And what social group are you in that that would proportionally or disproportionately affect you, right? Like, going back to the story I mentioned earlier the 1607 series by Neil Gaiman where he's rewriting a bunch of the classic Marvel characters within the context of it taking place in 1607 and Doctor Strange is taking specifically like taking kind of role that the historical John Dee took where you know he was the queen's magician he was also her spy master things like that and magic was definitely something where there were laws on the books that heavily regulated it but was also the queen herself you know had someone to do things for her any given individual listening to this wants to take this seriously mm, you know um but nonetheless and like you know john d's notebook still exists where he you know was taking like transcription and Anakian of his communications with angels and stuff and there's just all of this stuff that was considered completely normal for hundreds of years why wouldn't you communicate with angels and demons you know like picking up a phone by the time you come to the 19th century however you know the very kind of kind of cultural milieu has really changed a lot of the religious tensions of past centuries have kind of consolidated into you know the question of whether or not you're a member of certain kinds of evangelical christianity and at the same time there is you know multiple kinds of folk practices that are considered you know more or less normal there's the entire theosophical uh, movement there is the spiritualism movement 
movement that Arthur Conan Doyle was involved in. There are all these things going on where there is a popular interest in the esoteric, even as there is a popular interest in the scientific, and how these things overlap. And within the context of this particular story, I think that maybe they're kind of gesturing at that a little bit, because aren't like Alistair and Alison, they're both doctors, right? But they're kind of helpless in the face of magic. Alison's technically isn't, I don't believe, because she's the brigadier. She, yeah, she's mm-hmm. in like the army, but there are versions of her that are a doctor, so yes. that actually is confusing. But Alistair definitely, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, Kate, sorry, we interrupted you. <laughs> you provide a context, which yes. you know, <laughs> but it's that kind of same sort of thing. And like, you know, the X-Men comics generally, I mean, they're the children of the atom. They are this all of the anxiety of, you know, modern day atomics and all of these other things, right? And so this idea of like magical intrusion into the world is, is very much at odds with it. They don't know what to do with it versus, you know, the genetics that they are beholden to, which I just think is very interesting, but also makes sense in latter 20th century fiction. You know, the common dismissal of magics in folklore and such. It makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I always find it interesting when magic shows up in a superhero space and to see different characters' reactions to magic. And I do really like Kurt's calmness. Kurt is the one that has the association with Doctor Strange, and he's the one that just is folding his arms calmly and watching Doctor Strange do his thing because, of course, he grew up with magic. I mean, this isn't something that's scary to him. I thought that that was a good character read of him, but um, I don't know. Did, did you, Andrew or Mav, have sort of thoughts about the intrusion of magic and the intrusion of Doctor Strange, like having someone beyond the Excalibur universe enter this universe for the first time? I think it's kind of the laziest use of Doctor Strange that we see all the time. <laughs> yeah. There's a magical problem called Doctor Strange, like he's the Ghostbusters. He'll show up. There's a brief conflict. He'll explain some things to you and then he'll break out the eye of Agamotto and go home. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I hate that. This yeah, is a really dynamic character who can do amazing things. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I feel like this is a disservice to Doctor Strange. He's barely a character here. But again, we, we've had a story where um, you know, we had the powers a couple of issues ago. You know, Alex Power was technically a crossover. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, and he was also out of character, but that's because Higgins writes him out of character. Higgins was the author of record for that book, so that's fine. Yeah, I think describing him as the Ghostbusters is essentially how they use him here, and I and that is lazy Doc Strange writing. I would almost rather that Kurt called Amanda. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just because because there's more of a story there. There's you know there's more of a relationship, and uh, again, fill an issue, right? I don't know that you're allowed to complicate Kurt's world with his relationship with. Megan as the fill-in writer right now in a way that like it, it doesn't hurt anything to call Doctor Strange for one day. So I guess that's why you do it. But it is kind of, you know, Doctor Strange shows up and waves his magic wand and things go away. It's the least interesting part of the story to me. What's interesting is, I mean, I made fun of it because I don't like how they did the, you know, I'm just going to lock you in the closet thing because it makes Alistair look dumb. But all the ways in which he doesn't look dumb, all the ways in which we are saying, look, he really is a part of this team we don't know why we like him he doesn't have powers he can't fight but we like him and we had this adventure with him so he's going to be part of Excalibur moving forward I find that interesting and I find his relationship with his sister interesting and like you said and the fact that she doesn't fit in the world because she didn't get to go on the cross time caper so she just walks away there's so much that is interesting here and I you know even their bickering with each other is sort of it's not how I would have written it it's not how Chris Claremont wrote it. That's fine. It, Morsehead is not Claremont. So give it your own your own touch. It's fine. That's what I'm interested in. And and I think it's an okay story in and of that. But the magic of it, it's a deus ex machina. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it just, I don't know what he did. He said some words. He waved his hands around. Little circly things happened. It's like, like whatever Peter Parker says um, in, in game. You know, Doctor Strange did his little magic circle thing. And then stuff went away. <laughs> that, <laughs> well, that's what he does. I didn't mind it in the sense that it's very basic Doctor Strange, but it is that thing where he combines science and magic, and I mean, he does that very directly here in the sense that he bandages Kurt's wound as a doctor and then does his magic thing. So, I mean, I don't know. Like, he's an impressive Dussex Magata in the sense that he shows up with his green minotaur assistant with his dramatic cape, and so if you're going to have somebody show up, he at least makes an entrance, which, you know, makes the issue fun of 
nothing else. That's my pitch for it. I mean, we should think about wrapping up and think about some final thoughts and I'll let Kate have the final one. But um, mine was just a touch on that ending just again and the like little bickering scene. I mean, it's cheesy and stuff, but for me, that was another one of the bits of humor that worked for me in the sense that I liked the little story beat of Kurt telling everybody to calm down and everybody telling him to shut up. <laughs> in the sense that we've talked about to the extent that we read Kurt as the leader he's the person who sort of like is calm and manages the volatile emotions and everybody is just not having it and I actually thought that that was like a cute little character beat in that sense and I it made me smile um other final thoughts from you Andrew or Mav not what I thought you were going to smile at I thought you were going to talk about the panel that is there's a whole panel devoted to Kurt's abs that's just I was sure that's what we were going to talk about here I mean we don't have to if you don't want to but I thought I thought you know in, in closing there's a close-up of Kurt's abs in pajamas but really it's just like we don't want to waste space on its face let's just cover that in shadow but the abs we've got to show the abs <laughs> That's like a whole thing that that is an artistic choice that was made in this comic. <laughs> well, I was going to bring that up in the context of us thinking about the particular threat of Vampire Kurt, because that was what was going on there. And I just sort of missed my moment. And I really should have come back to it in the final thoughts. I am not fulfilling my duties as Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager very well today at all. I missed the significance of the bite. I didn't talk about his abs. I'm just like, I'm going to get a pay cut for, for my performance on this episode. Andrew, did you have any final thoughts? Uh, just a quick one. Um, Vancata doing really good work on colors in terms of um, coloring dark scenes, which is mm. always difficult, conveying that you're in darkness, but still finding vibrancy in the colors. Um, I thought he did a great job of that. Aw, nice little shout out. Thank you for that, Andrew. Um, I will come to you, Kate. Do you have any final thoughts to send this issue off with? Things that you're desperate to talk about that we haven't talked about? Um, I guess my, fi my final thought is, you know, I, I wasn't aware of the storyline, and so I, I have, like, another, like, interest into my mental collection of female vampires who make it to the end oh. <laughs> which is a very nice. short list and i'm glad megan's on it oh, that's an excellent final thought we're all very glad of that too is that what you want count dracula a last blaze of utter horror and violence ghastly annihilation of an entire planet is this your own death wish upon you to witness my supreme trial. So Kate, thank you so, so much for joining us. If you would like people to find you online, where can they find you and what projects of yours should they run, not walk to check out? Uh, well, I have my edited collection, uh, The Global Vampire, that came out last year. You can find that at most online bookstores and such. Otherwise, I'm a librarian at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. <laughs> if you have any questions about vampires or other things, feel free to hit me up. I like nerding out. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like anybody to follow you on social media? Do you want to give out any handles for that? You don't have to. Um, I'm on Facebook as Kate Coker. There, there's a there's a few of us, but I'm the only one that's employed at the University of Illinois. So <laughs> you know. if anyone wants to come say hi, just be like, hello, I like vampires. And I'll be like, hello, you had me at vampires. Thank you so much again, Kate, for joining us. We will link all of those fabulous things in our show notes. Next, in one week's time, we'll be on to episode 32, discussing Excalibur 31, No Man is an Island, in which Kurt goes on vacation and it's not especially relaxing. There's lots of blue fur in that one, and I'm excited to talk about all of it. We're going to talk about gazes, looks, and stares, and monsters, and objectification, and race, and disability, either illuminating the hidden complexities of a seemingly silly adventure story, or giving it entirely too much credit. You'll have to decide. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which you can find via our website.
website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter, at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Matt, for another magical conversation. Thank you, Kate, for lending us your tracking skills. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thought Form Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. Stop it.